And now, ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts. Welcome to PreneurCast. Yeah, business cards being swapped, beers being drunk. Can I say a nasty word? Can I say procrastination? With Pete Williams and Don Gosher. How well did that go down? We'll talk about that entire thing in a very another rant and soapbox episode if you want to. Visit us online at preneurmarketing.com. Hey, it's Pete, and welcome to the PreneurCast podcast. As you may already know, Dom and I are taking a short break from recording live episodes of the show so we can work on a couple of major projects in our own individual businesses. But we're not going to leave you hanging though. So what we've decided to do is replay a few of our most favorite, most loved, most downloaded, and most reviewed episodes from the last three years that Dom and I have been doing the show. And this week, it's a conversation with Robert Green. Robert is the author of The 48 Laws of Power, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law with 50 Cent. We cover a lot in this conversation, so whether you listened to it before or it's your first time hearing the conversation with Robert, you are going to get a lot of gold out of this. Sit back, enjoy, and Dom and I will be back very, very soon with some new live episodes of the PreneurCast Marketing Podcast. Robert, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Pete. My, my pleasure. I've, I've really loved the, your earlier books, 48 Laws of Power and Art of Seduction and, and particularly the 50 Cent book as well, which was really cool. So we might touch on that a little bit later. But obviously the whole context of, of today's conversation is about mastery, the, the new book, which is very exciting. Yes, um, it's the I, I considering it in some ways sort of the synthesis of all of my four previous books, <laughs> you know, which kind of deal in one way or another with various forms of power. And I'm calling this sort of the ultimate form of power when you've when you've mastered your field, um, you have a, a kind of creative uh, spirit and an intuitive grasp of the field that no matter what you do, no matter where you're thrown, you're, you're just going to, you're going to figure out how to solve problems and come up with interesting ideas. So this is sort of the, the ultimate book in the series. Yeah, absolutely. And I've really, really enjoyed it. I was able to get a pre-release copy and have thoroughly enjoyed what I've read. Um, so I guess to give some context to, to listeners who obviously wouldn't have heard about Mastery yet, given it's only coming out in the next couple of days, what, what's the book about in, in sort of an overall sort of frame to sort of, I guess, set the, the frame for this conversation? Well, I'm, I'm trying to debunk the idea that, uh, among other things, that um, that success or, or genius or anything like that uh, has to do with something you're born with. Like you have a, there's like a genetic component or people yeah. have natural gifts or, or they're just lucky. I want to show very, very clearly that to master a field, to gain the kind of power uh, that a Da Vinci has or, or an Einstein or a Steve Jobs or whomever, you have to go through a process, a very, a process that I can explain in detail that in, that um, entails a lot of work and effort, um, hours of practice, uh, but has an incredible payoff, which is mastery. So um, I'm going to show you in six clear chapters with an introduction this process, and 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 the chapters kind of move sequentially through time, more or less, taking you from the first steps when you must sort of look at yourself and look at the skills and the in- natural inclinations you have towards particular subjects, and then moving you through 
the various parts of what I call the apprenticeship phase, which we all go through and which is, I think, the key, the foundation Mm -hmm. for all future success. And then I end up in the final chapters talking about the creative phase that you then enter when you have spent several years going through this and then finally mastery. So that's basically uh, how the book is structured. And that's the, you mentioned the word process, which is one thing I really took away from, from the book compared to the other books where I guess they've been more fragmented in terms of like the 48 Laws of Power have – it's an amazing book and 48 distinct separate almost essays you could kind of call them where they're not necessarily interlinked or a process to gain power, whereas in this book you've kind of gone to the process of, of making it a process. Was there a, a conscious decision for that as opposed to other books you've done? Well, the only other book that has, is actually similar is the second half of The Art of Seduction. Yeah. In The Art of Seduction, I take essentially 24, I guess you could call them seduction strategies, but they're, they're organized sequentially from when you first meet this person you're going to seduce to the very end. But yeah, I, this was a very conscious decision for this book because um, you can't divorce uh, the actual process and the time element from the the goal from from what this book is about, which is mastery, and I make it really clear with examples like Mozart or Albert Einstein, the, the examples that we all, people often choose to show someone who was like born a genius. <laughs> exactly. And and I make it very clear that no, I can explain to you the process that they went through. They, we talk about 10,000 hours as kind of a legendary number, and it's mm-hmm. actually very true and very interesting. And it's easy to demonstrate that by the age of 16, Mozart had gone through his 10,000 hours, that Einstein, by the time he came up with his theory of relativity at the age of 26, had definitely gone through his 10,000 hours and more. It is a process, and no matter if it's some incredible genius or it's, it's somebody working uh, as an entrepreneur – you are you are going to be going through an apprenticeship phase and you are the product of the amount of hours and practice and skills that you have built up there's no kind of shortcuts to this mastery and to success yeah i think you know the apprenticeship's a perfect word for it and i really want to talk about that in a moment but the the 10,000 hours thing is something that i think you're going to probably get a lot um, throughout the, the promotion of the book and just the conversation around the book is the, the comparison to Gladwell's um, Outliers. What, what's your right. take for people who kind of have maybe read that book and kind of think, oh, how is this different? You know, what, How do you separate what you're writing about? I'll, I'll give you my idea and my takeaway in a moment. What's your um, way to verbalize the differences between the two books? Well, I consciously made the decision not to actually read Outliers when I knew I was doing this book because I wanted oh, wow. to keep my, myself totally fresh and have my own perspective. I'm, I'm a great admirer of his work, and I read Blink and Tipping Point, but I actually, now I can read his book. Um, but I, I'm very aware of the ideas in it. Uh, this, you know, this is book about, is about 10,000 hours, but it's really about 20,000 hours. Um, so, you know, in, in 10,000 hours, you're usually going to reach that in eight to 10 years of, of good work. Mm-hmm. The masters that I'm profiling, they're getting there after 15 to 20 years. And the incredible uh, creative and intuitive powers that come from all of that experience. But, you know, from what I've heard of his book, um, I'm bringing in, first of all, his book doesn't go through the sort of sequencing that I am and such heavily on process. And, you know, my books have more of a self-help 
a conscious self-help angle. I'm very practically oriented. I want you to read the book and I want you to say, this is how I can precisely apply it to my life um, and make you reflect and go, here's how I can measure where I am right now. I know that uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book uh, doesn't do that. And then I'm, I'm, he's much more into uh, contemporary examples and statistics and studies. I have a little bit of that, and I have nine contemporary people I interviewed for the book, and I, I very much make a point of relating it to, to our times, but I'm suffusing it in what I call three million or six million years of human evolution. So I'm showing that the brain has evolved in a certain way, and you're going to maximize this evolution. So I, I'm dealing with such deep history that I have to do a, a lot of uh, delving into human history and even into prehistory, which he obviously doesn't. Yeah, and that's one thing I really love about about all your books because I in high school and I just history just didn't sort of I couldn't relate it to, to what I was doing, and obviously that was teacher's fault or, or or my fault or definitely a mixture of both. And I think reading your books has really kind of over time given me that passion again, you know, to be completely open about the, the actual relevance of history. I, I never really had that bridge, but the, the books kind of weirdly in, a, in an indirect way kind of gave me that which is uh which was really cool um well, that's very exciting to hear yeah so in terms of like you know obviously you you must read a lot but to, I, i'm sorry i'm sorry people i didn't hear your take on the gladwell book well, the yeah, i was going to say yeah basically exactly what you said i think that the two things that i took away is it's it's much more action orientated it's it's definitely that sort of implementation type approach yep. to the writing as opposed to gladwell's books which are great but they're very theoretical and they left they leave you thinking more than actually taking action and you know there's right. definitely a time and place i think for for consuming content that leaves you thinking but there's yes. you know definitely people need to actually have a book or a, an article or an essay or whatever it might be that leaves them with actual implementation tactics and i think that's what your books really do which is which is definitely right. a differentiator for sure particularly for me okay mm-hmm. yeah i agree so I guess from from a reading perspective, um, you know, Outliers must have been about the only book you didn't read researching the book. Just out of interest, how much time did it take to write the book and, and how much research and, and effort and how many books did you actually consume putting this one together? Well, it took about two and a half years. Um, you know, you, you must realize that in writing the other books and throughout my life, all of my accumulated experience Absolutely. is being on in writing it, but literally it took two and a half years. Um, and that's working day and night, Christmas, birthdays, you know, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much very few, few time off or very little time off. Um, I read, um, probably upwards of 200 books for this. Um, and I don't just read books. I like read and reread them and break them apart and take extensive notes. Now, I didn't do that for every single one of those 200 books. Uh, you know, there'll be some half of them in which I will really, really take them apart in that method. And, you know, I, when I'm reading the book, I'm, I'm taking extensive notes. I'm putting everything on note cards and then I'm organizing these note cards into themes because Organization is a huge part of pulling a book like this off. But on top of it, I had the nine interviews with contemporary people, and that meant going through the transcripts, um, taking notes on the transcripts, kind of finding a way to weave all that into into the other notes that I'd taken. So I don't mean to reveal all the, the, the how the sausage was made, but <laughs> was you know it was kind of a gargantuan project more than the other books. 
as far as organizing all of this material and then putting it into a book that is not only going to be kind of fun to read, but, you know, is organized and well, you know, and helps inform you about, you know, it's, it's a practical guide. So there were there were many challenges. Yeah. And I think that's definitely the, the hardest part, I would, I would assume, is just the writing of the words is probably the easiest part of the whole process. And I know that's, you know, for my book I've written and my new book I'm working on, and, and Ryan's definitely articulated this to me, Ryan Holiday, in a number of conversations and even in the interview we had for his book, that it's the organization and the research which is the hardest part. And once you get that framework um, and that roadmap of all the themes and things put together, the actual writing is the easier part. Well, that's true. I, I have a slightly different experience in that um, once I sit down to write, I don't just simply uh, start writing. I have to take all of my cards and material and and organize it right there in that moment and then try and make it all seem like I'm not being so anal and uptight and make it seem like it flows. So actually the writing is not as, as easy as it would be if I didn't have so much research to incorporate. But I don't mean to give people the impression that it's, it's like this massive headache because there's a lot of pleasure involved and particularly in the writing. I, I, I enjoy kind of getting out my enthusiasms and a lot of my anger i use a lot of anger when i write books so there, there's something cathartic about the experience <laughs> very very cool well in terms of i guess your effort of writing you know you talk a lot about the the importance of apprenticeship um in, yes. in the book and things like that i'd love to sort of you know get you to articulate that much better than i can given you've obviously put in the book putting the book together, but also talk about your apprenticeship because obviously now you've written a number of fantastic um, you know, New York Times bestselling books. What was your apprenticeship like? I know you've sort of spoken about having 80 jobs historically. How did you go yeah. through that apprenticeship process to become the master author that you, you're perceived to be and I believe you are today? Well, uh, that's very nice for you to say that. Um, it, was a, it was an elaborate uh, apprenticeship that probably stretched over a good 20 years and made my parents really worry about me. Uh, <laughs> I basically, I knew that I, when I was very young, I wanted to be a writer and I was also very interested in, in history. And after I graduated college, um, I kind of, uh, spent, you know, a few years wandering around Europe, like a lot of writers do, at least back then. And I had so many different jobs, construction, washing dishes, working in hotels, you know, I, I had a real working class experience of Europe. And then I came back and I worked in journalism in New York and wasn't very happy. And then I had other jobs. And then I worked in Hollywood as a writer and I wasn't happy. I was writing, but it wasn't the right fit. And, and I knew it. And I kept trying and I kept, uh, I, I would get depressed, but I didn't lose hope. And um, the good thing was, is that I had accumulated a lot of worldly experience. I had practiced uh, the craft of writing over many years. I had developed working in Hollywood as a researcher. It was one of my jobs. I had developed really high level organizational and researching skills. And then in 1995, 96, when I was already the advanced age of 36, 37, and as I said, my parents were really starting to wonder, I had this, I met this man who asked me if I had some ideas for a book. Um, and I just realized at that point that that was my opportunity in life. You don't get very many. Mm. This, this was the fit. I knew this was the fit. I pitched to him the idea of the 48 Laws of Power. He loved it. He encouraged me to write a treatment. 
once he loved the treatment, he, he paid me money to live while I actually wrote uh, half of the book. And then, you know, the rest is history. But I, I'll say that, um, and, I, and I saw that in the stories of a lot of the people I researched, and I'm not to, not to include myself in the group of, of masters I'm profiling, but a lot of them have a similar story where they're not people who knew right away when they're 18, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. There are people like that. But I ha- you, the, a lot of these people have a kind of inner radar that directs them to things that, that are good experiences, um, that are, th- their eyes are open, they're learning, they're observing. And then when the chance comes, they have all of this knowledge and wisdom and actually several different skills to draw upon. And it all comes, you know, it, it all fits. And so, um, you know, if I hadn't met this man, where would I be? I don't know. I probably would have eventually figured out that writing books was what I was meant to do. But there would be no uh, books like The 48 Laws of Power, all of that elaborate apprenticeship that I had gone through. And I make the case in the book, there are different kinds of apprenticeships. There's no cookie cutter way. Some people are going to have a more direct path than I did. They're going to know out of college that this is where they're headed and they're going to kind of figure it all out. And that's fine. And that's good. And then there's the other path uh, that's more kind of wandering. uh, And that's also good. But there's the only thing that is not good is to think that you don't have to learn skills in this world, that you don't have to develop patience and discipline. That's where you're going to fall apart. Yeah, And, and I couldn't agree more. And this is something I kind of rant on quite a bit on the show here to the listeners. They're probably used to me sort of saying this sort of stuff. But I completely agree that, you know, the apprenticeship uh, in, in its various forms is very important. But I think so many people kind of ignore the, the relevance of an apprenticeship in this day and age. Um, yeah. What's your, your take on that? Well, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful concept that developed, um, you know, essentially in the Middle Ages. It has roots going further back. But there's a reason why the apprenticeship system developed, and that is we humans, the way our brain is constructed, are naturally gifted for learning by actually doing things, by practicing them, by looking at how other people are doing it and imitating them. And this applies as much as building something as it does to writing. Um, reading books and looking how other people write is just is just as important. And then you learn by doing. You don't learn by being in it like how we learn in school, where you just sit there and passively listen to someone's lecture and then take notes and then write an essay. You learn by getting your hands dirty. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you don't learn you're not going to be successful with just your your MBA. You're going to be successful if you go out and start a business and it fails. That failure that you had that took the course of a year and you know may have cost a lot of money is 80 times more worthwhile than a, three years of an MBA. So the apprenticeship system is built on the concept that you learn by doing trial and error. Um, it's it's just a whole other way of looking at the learning process. And you have to get away from the process that you were sort of in, inculcated in school of, of just reading books and, uh, and kind of absorbing theories and ideas. It's practice, practice, practice. That's how you build skills and that's how you really learn. So that's why I think the apprenticeship system is so important. And it's interesting to note that a lot of people, it's, it's in the air right now. I really, I really feel it. I was just reading an article, for instance, where law schools are now changing their their methods and instead of that third year of law school which is kind of meaningless where you you know you take all sorts of silly classes they're actually making you 
go out in the real world and have an internship and kind of learn some other skills besides law, but you're actually going out in the real world and working. I think we're heading back towards it because it fits so naturally into how the human brain evolved and how we really learn things. Yeah, I completely agree. I Peter Thiel with his um, Thiel Fellowship, you know, one of the founders of PayPal, sort of doing that similar type of uh-huh. thing. And I think there is definitely that grand swell, particularly in that sort of Silicon Valley area about sort of don't go and get a college degree, go and work for pennies, so to speak, for, for 12 months and really, you know, learn. I know Ryan Holiday did that with yourself and obviously yes. – um, you know, a number of other places to sort of get where he's gotten. And, you know, I was only a couple of days ago having a conversation with the Dean of Deakin University, which is one of Australia's leading universities. I'm on the advisory board of the curriculum there and we're uh-huh. sort of discussing some stuff about changing some curriculum things. And, and they're very much driving their, um, you know, commerce degrees and things like that to be much more practical rather than that sort of textbook style learning, which I think is a, a much smarter way to, to go because I think it is going to be more – um, congruent with, with what people need to ha- the skills they need to have when they go out in the real world, so to speak. Uh, yeah, and and on the other thing I would say is you have to think of your of yourself in your life in, a, in with a particular attitude, which is nothing is wasted. Nothing you've ever done is is really mm. a waste of time if you ha- if you look at it right. So I went to university and I got a degree in Greek and Latin classics. And what could be what? There's no more yeah. irrelevant. <laughs> A major in the world, but I have no regrets about it. You know, I, I, I know that I really learned how to write in the, wor- the real world, but that education really helped me be- become disciplined and organized and learn how to analyze something and break it down and, and be patient. It's a real painstaking thing. And so I've looked at everything I've done in my life as some kind of th- skill that I've developed that has come into help me later on. Now, if you end up studying some of these ridiculous postmodern subjects uh, that are just there so you can, you know, get a good grade, then that's a a totally different thing. But you have to look at everything that you're doing in the, in, in, in education or wherever as, as some kind of skill, you're getting some kind of skill out of it. And what is that skill and be sort of aware of that. Mm, I com- completely agree. I think it's also not even just college. It's also sort of, you know, you come out of university and you, you get a job in the real world and people stop thinking that their 20s is also a, also an apprenticeship in a certain context. I think that, you know, yeah. even when you get a real job, you still have to consider yourself as an apprentice and you don't necessarily deserve the $200,000 paycheck and, and, and the raises and the accolades. You still need to actually go through that apprenticeship in the real world as well, which people sort of well, lose that- sight of, I think. Well, in fact, that is the beginning of your apprenticeship. That's exactly. the start of it. Your, your learning doesn't start until you get out of college. That's when it, reality finally slaps you in the face. <laughs> and I talk, you know, I have the example in there of Paul Graham. I'm sure you're aware yep. of Paul Graham and Y Combinator and the success he's had. Absolutely. And I, I was fascinated by his apprenticeship. He kept telling me when I was interviewing, I didn't have an apprenticeship. I always wished I had. I didn't have one. But, but clearly, as we talked about it, he did have one. And what he had was a hacker's apprenticeship. He tried everything that, that, that he wanted to try. He went to Harvard and did computer engineering and artificial intelligence. He then went into consulting, which he hated. He then studied, decided to study painting and art history. And he went and lived in Italy and then in New York and was an artist. And then finally, he's, in, he's turning 30 years old. And he's like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? And he hears on the, on the radio an ad for Netscape about how Netscape is going to be creating this new world of, of internet commerce. 
and a light bulb goes on his head that, well, you know, maybe I could take all the skills that I've developed and come up with something for that. And that leads to what he, he's basically invented uh, the first, uh, I'm not going to get into it technically, but what he invented sort of started the whole internet commerce movement where you could set up your own store on the yeah. internet. He sold it for $50 million and, and the rest is history. But in looking back on it, it was sort of like a hacker's apprenticeship. Cut and paste, cheesy hacks, try this, try that, it fails, it doesn't work. And then finally, the, the right hack comes about. And that's how you look at your 20s. As long as you have a, a general idea of what you want and you're excited and you're motivated and you're learning skills, it'll all come to work in the end, you know. Well, where do you think luck plays a part of this? You can sort of say, and a lot of people will actually, uh, I guess, take the cop out and sort of just say, oh, there's luck involved in terms of, uh, you know, your uh, conversation with, and I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly, is it Joost, Joist, who funded You got it right, you right? Got it right okay. the first time. You got yeah. it right the okay, first Okay, perfect. Time. Who obviously was the, the book packager who, who made yes. the 48 Laws of Power happen. Like. A lot of people say, oh, that's luck. There was no real, you know, knowing your calling and apprenticeship. That was just, just luck. You had someone who had some, you know, funds to invest in, in, in time for, for a book. Like, how, how would you tackle that complaint, that well, well, out, that, well, you know, crutch people often lean on? Well, first I would punch them in the face because, <laughs> because I really, really hate that kind of – it's a total cop-out. Absolutely. Just, it's just silly. Um you know, of course, there's an element of serendipity involved in life. We don't choose the, the historical era we're born to, our parents, our, our income bracket, the, you know, that kind of determines what university we go, the people we meet. I mean, yes, we don't control all of that. But, you know, Louis Pasteur was the one who said that you can't, you create your own luck. Mm -hmm. He was sort of the master at it because a lot of his, his discoveries were based on luck, but it was through preparation and being having uh, kind of prepared himself and learned a lot and, and having his mind open that he reached that. I have the story in there uh, of Michael Faraday, one of the greatest uh, scientists of the 19th century, probably the, the greatest experimental scientist ever, really. And he came from a poor background in, in a time in which nobody from that class could ever hope to become a scientist. And through a series of what appears to be luck, he ended up finding the absolute perfect mentor. He wandered into a bookstore, and the, the, the man who ran the bookstore kind of liked him a lot and gave him an apprenticeship as a bookbinder. And this allowed him to now be surrounded by books, which was an, a very unique thing. And then he happened to find a book that instructed him about how to learn on your own called Improvement of the Mind. And it suddenly made him very disciplined, and he gave him himself an education in science. And then a man wandered into the store who was who had a position at the Royal Society, on and on and on. But the actual point of the story of Michael Faraday is that through his intensity, through the desire he had to learn, through the love that he had for science, through the patience and persistence he had in doing this and this and this, he made it so other people were impressed with him. And then when the opportunity came, a lot of people had heard of Michael Faraday. This kid was so disciplined and so smart that naturally something good was going to happen to him. So it's the whiners, it's the people who never get off their butt and do something, uh, who have this belief that it's all about luck. There is luck, but, you know, it, why don't you not think about it? Why don't you just think for, for a change that actually 
a lot more is is involved from my own willpower. And, and if you think like that, you're more likely to make it happen. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And you touch on there about the, the mentorship um I guess requirements probably not the right word, but obviously in the book as well you talk about you know the third sort of I guess phase you go through as mastery is to have that mentor relationship, and you sort of touched on that with, with Michael there. Well, how do you go about approaching and getting a mentor? Obviously, you talk about a whole bunch of different ways in, in the book, and I think Ryan Holiday is probably a, a good modern day contemporary in terms of you know going out and, and getting an apprenticeship and, and mentoring under yourself and Dove, and now being a, a very um, successful author in his own right, and obviously publicist for want of a better term. Um, so, so how does that play into the whole um, mastery development through through a mentor relationship and approaching mentors and actually going about getting a mentor and finding somebody? Well, I make the point in the book that there are really no shortcuts to mastery, but the only thing that comes close to a shortcut is finding the right mentor. Because if you've got the right mentor, you, their experience becomes your experience, and they can kind of give you real-time feedback. They can tell you what your strengths and weaknesses are. They can give you not shortcuts, but they can streamline the process and say, avoid that experience. Do this. This is more valuable. And five, two or three years with a mentor can be worth 10 years struggling on your own. And the other thing is, you'd be surprised, people um, who you might admire as a writer, an entrepreneur, a business person, a politician, whomever, you might be intimidated to approach them thinking, you know, I uh, I could never hope to interest them in becoming their, their student or whatever. But in fact, it's really the opposite. A lot of people in power are looking for it's a very satisfying relationship on both ends. It's a good feeling to impart the skills you've learned to someone else. You, I know for my, for, in my case, having Ryan now um, helping me publicize the book, he's obviously a lot younger than I am, and he understands the Internet and what's happening in the world now much more than I can. So it's a very satisfying mutual interest kind of relationship. Basically, Ryan, uh, I met him five or six years ago through a, a, a mutual friend, yeah, yeah. Tucker. Tucker, yep, yep. And uh, I was impressed by his seriousness, um, the fact that he, I knew, I could tell he wasn't a slacker, he wasn't all talk, and he was a, a big fan of, the, of my books. And uh, I just sensed that he was serious. And I think that's like the most, the fact that you could have possibly, um, uh, uh, you can mentor someone who is, has good character and is going to work hard is actually sometimes more important than what kind of degree they have or or how intellectual they might appear or whatever. And um, not to say that Ryan wasn't smart, but I was really impressed by his eagerness and his character more than anything. And so I gave him a simple task. My Wikipedia page was a mess. And he said he could fix it, and he fixed it. He delivered what he said he could do, and he did a great job. Okay, Dove Charney had a Wikipedia page. Dove is the CEO of American Apparel. Okay, go fix Dove's page. He did a great job. And not only was I impressed, but Dove was impressed and hired him. And so on and on down the line, he proved himself. He delivered what he said he he could do, and he showed that he had the spirit and the demeanor that would get results. You can tell these things. And so, you know... After a while, uh, then it becomes a really satisfying relationship for both. And I've been able, you know, Ryan really has done it 
mostly on his own, but I've been in a position now to really help him uh, with his own writing and help him launch his career as a, as a writer. So uh, it's it's a very satisfying relationship if you find the right mentor. And I talk in the book, some people are wrong mentors for you. You're attracted to them because they they're uh, they seem charismatic or something you want to find a mentor that has the skills that you really want to have yourself and it doesn't matter whether they have a sparkling personality or whether they have like are making a lot of money they have the skills and knowledge that's the right mentor for you and also maybe a, a, a spirit that kind of is congruent. They, you, it's a good fit. And so I, I talk a lot about in that. I, I instruct you in all the ins and outs of, of how to find the right mentor. Yeah, it, it's it's brilliant. The, the one thing out of the book that I guess kind of leads on after the mentor is something that kind of, I'll, I'll use the word surprise me a little bit because I think if most people from the outside, um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't read the book because of this, but look at the, the path to mastery and kind of just try and articulate it themselves without doing any core research sort of you know find a, a niche or a, or a love or a calling as you call it do an apprenticeship find a mentor apprentice under that mentor start creating your own um, things and then become a master so that's kind of I guess a very you know overview arc which is sort of the main flow of the book but the extra thing in the book that I didn't really see coming so to speak was the social intelligence angle that you talk about do you want to explain that a little bit because I'm sure you can articulate it better than I can well, I want to take this the idea that we have of mastery out of this sort of intellectual realm and show that it's actually a very practical thing, that it's practical from Einstein and da Vinci to to Paul Graham or, or, or Henry Ford. Um, and basically, uh, you, 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 there's no such thing as having as living in a world that's isolated from other people. So you could develop, you could know your calling, you could go through a rigorous apprenticeship. You could learn all the necessary skills that are that you need. You can become talented and smart as ever, and you won't ever get anywhere. You will not advance on the chessboard in life because you have no social skills. You don't understand the political game. You don't know how to get along with other people. You don't have empathy. You don't you have no sensitivity to the the thoughts that other people might have about you about your own weaknesses. It's, you're, you're going to be useless. You're going to be tripping over your own feet and getting in your own way, left, right, and center. And so, A, not only do you have to pay as much attention to learning about people and learning about these skills, which I'm going to show you how, how you to do it in the book, but B, you have to think of the brain and intelligence in a different way. It's not like there are these separate modules in your brain of learning to play the piano and then getting along with people in the office or something. It, they're all interrelated, interconnected. And so the having social skills, being empathetic, being sensitive to the signals that people have, becoming intuitive like that is actually very much connected to other forms of intelligence, what we normally consider even intellectual intelligence. And I show in the book how you know, a lot of great scientists, you, uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin is the icon of what I call social intelligence, who he happened to be a great scientist and inventor as well, um, that his development of this 
really sensitive appreciation for the night, for the fine elements of dealing with people and also dealing with the dark side, how that was related to how his, his spirit and his open-mindedness and his fluidity in dealing with scientific issues. The two are interrelated. So you're not going to advance in life or in mastery unless you understand the importance of working with other people, learning how to cooperate, being pathetic, and also how to protect yourself from the dark sides of human nature. To, to, to take that element out is to not write a book on mastery in my, in my book, in my, well, in my view. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, once you do read that, that chapter in the book itself, you'll need to du- you know, jump back into the power and the war and the seduction stuff to really <laughs> pad out those skill sets. So it's, it's, it's a smart marketing ploy as well if that was a nice byproduct. <laughs> well, it, it, it might have been, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, from the, from the beginning, I'd always planned this to be kind of uh, the 48 Laws of Power chapter uh, within the book, because uh, I enjoy writing about that, and, and you can kind of tell that I enjoy writing that <laughs> chapter. But I really genuinely believe in this, and my research about the development of, of, of human intelligence shows how how much our brains developed in wor- in, in the social realm. You can't you can't disconnect the two, so I really, I really wanted to make that point. I love it. And speaking of those other books, you know, obviously, if you look at sort of the books in isolation, I guess you could kind of say that oh, the, the champion of the the strategies of war book would be Napoleon. Um, right. Art of Seduction would be Cleopatra. Uh, Threat, right. Laws of Power, Louis the Louis the Fourteenth. Yeah. I'd, I'd be guessing. Yeah. Who's the the icon, the champion, the the, the hero of of Mastery? Because you obviously cover a lot, like you do in every book. Who, who's the one that kind of is the, the hero of this book? Do you think? Well, I, I think there's one, maybe two. Um, I'd always intended Leonardo da Vinci as sort of the icon. He's, he opens the book. Um, and it's uh, for the fact that he, he was just so awesome. I mean, his inventions just alone, I mean, we know him as an amazing artist. But the list of inventions that he had and discoveries that he had is just mind-boggling. Um, it's almost like something out of science fiction. And then you go to his artwork, um, which there isn't much of it uh, that we still have, um, and, and the power of it and the the name and the aura that just his Leonardo da Vinci, uh, you know, mm. has um, is so masterful. And what I wanted to do was to show you uh, that that aura is not anything mysterious. Da Vinci was a, a, an illegitimate son of a notary who just happened to, to discover that he had a, a love for drawing, but he also had a love for nature and, and, and just a really curious mind. And he went through an elaborate apprenticeship that I can show you. He's, I guess, the icon. The other one that I really like a lot is, is Charles Darwin because he Charles Darwin debunks the myth that it's all about genetics and talent. He he was not a good student. He was a mediocre student. His father thought he was a failure. And he basically learns the skill of the, as a biologist on this incredible voyage to South America that essentially is his apprenticeship. And I consider... Uh, what Darwin did on that boat as sort of the model for any kind of apprenticeship, and I don't care where it is, if it's in the tech business or in art or whatever, that's the model mm. that you anybody can learn from. So, you know, da Vinci is is, is the icon, but as a close runner-up, there would be Darwin. Yeah. Well, with Darwin, though, obviously, you know, a lot of his, uh, I guess, his apprenticeship was, was on the boat trip. And he, would you say he had a direct mentor? Obviously, there was the, the, the captain of the boat who kind of almost contradicted 
Darwin's findings. Which So can you have a, a mentor that actually is contradictory to where you want to head and what your beliefs are? Well, no, that man wouldn't be his mentor. That was the, the captain of the ship, Fitzroy, was sort of this madman, this sort of <laughs> raving Christian who believed and I'm not, you know, saying I don't mean to to disparage Christianity. It's just that he believed in the literalness of the Bible, and he wanted Darwin to go to South America to find evidence for the flood and find evidence of the Garden of Eden, you know. And of course, Darwin did the exact opposite. One of great history's great ironies, but. Um, Darwin had mentors in college in Cambridge. He had a, a particular botany professor who showed him that he was not a good student. He didn't enjoy academics, but he could see that a subject like botany could fit him very well. And he had a really good instructor who then got him this job on the boat, the Beagle, that sailed around South America. Uh, but, but beyond that, Darwin had a few other mentors early on in his life, but he was a l- largely uh, a self-taught, which is a phenomenon that we have in the world. Uh, Thomas Edison, I say, is sort of the most interesting example of a man of power and mastery who had no mentors at all. He literally had zero mentors. Um, and it's not easy. It's not an easy path, but it can be done. And I show, you know, how, how you can actually follow that path. I think, you know, speaking of Edison, there's lots of, I guess, folklore or stories about Edison actually um, ripping off his apprentices and claiming their research as his own, which is sort of a whole another sort of can of worms, I guess, we probably don't have time to, to chat about. But is that a fair statement? Yes, he wasn't the, you know, he, he wasn't. <laughs> perhaps the nicest man, nor, nor, nor was, you know, someone like Steve Jobs. I'm not saying that masters are necessarily people you want to have over for Thanksgiving or Christmas. They, they you know, they can be often difficult people. But uh, Thomas Edison was, was uh, an absolute genius in my mm. book, a, a true master. Um, you're talking about the story with Tesla that I yeah. <laughs> that I described, 48 Laws of Power. So, you know, he had a dark side. But my God, this man... Uh, was really brilliant, and his in, the story of his invention of the electric light bulb is one of the greatest stories you'll ever read. I mean, talk about persistence, painstaking effort, mi- mixed with intuitive insight as to what this... And, and, and talk about one invention that has had a greater impact on the world. I know we like to think of, of Steve Jobs and the smart... <laughs> I'll ask you to find me one invention that, like the electric light bulb that changed how everyone around the world has lived. Uh, I don't think you'll find anything equivalent to that. Maybe maybe the uh, the wheel, yeah. you know. So I was about to say you could argue the wheel, but that's sort of... <laughs> okay. But uh, it's an amazing story, and it's an example of everything I talk about, where uh, uh, your motivation, your patience, your persistence... The energy you bring and the love that you bring to something is what will make you successful. And he, he certainly he certainly fits the bill. Mm. Well, let me ask you this question. I'm going to word it um, in a particular way. Out of all the books you've read, out of all the people you've studied, who is your favorite character from history? Well, it's a really hard, you know, choice. Um, uh, I would have to say of the people that I researched – uh, for the book, uh, the richest one, the one that was the greatest challenge and and reaped the greatest rewards for me personally was Napoleon Bonaparte, only because, and he's sort of the icon of the 33 strategies of war, only because it's such a classic, dramatic story of a young man. It's not that he emerged from poverty. He actually came from 
um, aristocracy in Corsica, which doesn't mean anything. He really was kind of from a middle class, even relatively poor family. But somebody emerging not from the top of society to slowly inching his way there to become the the preeminent military strategist of his era, probably in history, with a 10-year run that we have never, ever seen, nor will we ever witness in, in history, I was presented with a challenge. Why? Why was Napoleon's brain different? What made him the way he was? And oddly enough, I read books. I read a, an incredible 1,600-page biography of him and his battles. Oh. I read 20 books on just Napoleon himself. Nobody answered the question to me. Nobody. They hinted at it. They hinted at the fact that he had a very organized mind, that he had a mind like a computer, um, that he had a very fluid form of thinking, that he was an opportunist, yada, yada, yada. But they didn't go deeper and deeper and deeper until they came to the core of what made Napoleon Bonaparte the greatest strategist, the Mozart of warfare. Um, and I, to solve that riddle and to go so deeply into it was very satisfying to me. So I think I would have to to name him as my favourite. Oh, fantastic. Well, two two final questions and I'll, I'll let you go. One question I always ask guests is, what's the one question I haven't asked you that I should have? Wow. Okay, I'll tell you. Uh, I'm usually asked, uh, Robert, do you actually practice the laws that you, that you write about? There you go. You know, Here we go. Do you practice the laws they, that you write about? <laughs> do you practice all 48 laws? Do you do all of the 24 strategies of seduction and 33 strategies of war and follow 50 cents advice in the 50th law? <laughs> uh, no, uh, the answer is no. Uh, if I did, I would, I would probably be in a lunatic asylum or in prison. <laughs> Um, there's no way, uh, you could follow all the things in those books. Um, it's not, it's not a personal book. I'm not saying this is how I've run my life. I've used a lot of the laws. I've used, you know, a lot of the things in the seduction book. Uh, but I'm not this monster that has, you know, tried out everything that I write about. Fair enough. Now, speaking of 50 Cent, this is the, the one story that I, I read sort of reading about you prior to jumping on the call was um, the story about him seducing your 80-year-old mother. Yeah. You've got, you got to share a bit of that tale. That's just intriguing. Kind of ties everything in together, doesn't it? Well, you know, uh, my mom, you know, God bless her God bless her soul. She's now 86 or so. Uh, you know, she never really understood, why are you doing a book with 50 Cent? He seems so kind of violent and thuggish and she would see pictures of him on television and stuff like that and she just she just didn't understand it and she was a little concerned and i kept telling her he's not like that he's a nice guy but i knew she didn't believe me and um and then uh, he had a book we had a book signing together here in los angeles 50 and myself my mother was there and she just totally melted in his presence. Oh, he's so handsome. The smile on his face. He's so charismatic. What a nice boy he is. And I've seen <laughs> seduce just about everyone, you know, because half of it is you go in, he did it to me. Half of it is you go in expecting this kind of, you know, hip hop monster kind of with, with yep. you know, bullet wound in his, in his mouth and all the bling. And you end up, meeting someone who's just really polite and sweet and nice and attentive. So you, that kind of disarms you. But he's also got true, true charisma that comes through. And, you know, if, it could, if you could do it to my mom, then, you know, you just know there's nobody out there who's, who's, 
who would who wouldn't melt before fifty. <laughs> Love it. Very and cool. I've, I've seen him do it with women. My God, what a great seducer. Yeah. How does he compare to Neil Neil Strauss? Well, they're much different. Neil is a more of a uh, Neil's a great seducer, but yep. Neil's more that he he's like the mastery and uh, angle. He he studied it uh, with mystery. Yep. And it, it's like a craft. <laughs> you know? I've, I've, been out, I've, I've been out with him a couple of times and it's, uh, it's impressive to watch. It is very impressive <laughs> to watch. I, I personally witnessed it. But it's like a, he, he'll acknowledge it. He didn't start out in life as a seducer. He's not a natural. He learned it and he learned it really well. I would say that 50 um, is a total natural. And a total natural, uh, because I'm more in the Neil cap. I'm actually not in Neil's you know, uh, he'd be above me, but uh, I'm like more like Neil. It's it's something that I kind of learned and developed. But 50 was born that way. He's got, I don't know if he's born that way, but he has true natural charisma. Um, he's so relaxed with himself um, that it makes other people around him relax. It's kind of like how I describe Errol Flynn or Duke Ellington in the book. And that kind of masculine, relaxed, unselfconscious energy is uh, massively seductive. Yeah, and he definitely did his apprenticeship. There's no question about that. Particularly in the start of um, the 50th law, you obviously talk about um, 50s. Actually, um, his sort of his apprenticeship. In not you don't call it an apprenticeship at that point, but you sort of you can definitely see he clearly went through an apprenticeship to sort of get to where he's gotten um, in every sort of path he's taken, whether it's right or wrong. Well, uh, uh, most definitely. In fact, uh, 50 was sort of one of the main inspirations for the book on mastery. I know you'll find that counterintuitive, like to put in the, uh, Leonardo da Vinci and, and <laughs> Fenn in the same sentence there. But in fact, uh, he, he actually inspired the book for the reason that um, once he decided to get out of hustling, um, which, you know, he had an interest in business, but he saw hustling as a dead end. He got into music, but he approached what he did in music as um, like a university. It was an apprenticeship. He wasn't in there for scoring women or drugs or getting fame and bling and money. He was in there to learn and it totally altered how he approached it. So he found the right mentor and Jam Master Jay was the perfect mentor for him. Then when he signed a deal at Columbia, his first deal, he went there every day that he could and he, he watched people in, in, in various elements of the business, even the production side, and he treated it like it was a university because he knew someday all that he would need all that education. And he does that to this day he's always learning and so it wasn't just like get me that one album make money and then go party he, he doesn't he's not he doesn't drink he, he spends his time working out he's very disciplined he's he completely fits the mold of mastery as i describe it he's a, he's an intriguing example of it very very cool well robert thank you so much for your time i know you're a busy man got a lot of books to read and, and things like that do you have a new book already planned i know most authors sort of have the next one in in the sort of the, the idea space uh, already? Uh, I do, but I'm in the process of crafting a treatment, and it's very bad luck uh, to talk about something that's, very that's, true. that's in such a preliminary stage. I don't want to jinx oh, it. I wasn't going to ask you what it was. I was just intrigued if you got the next idea. So, Robert, thank you so much. The book uh, is Mastery. It's available uh, in all good bookstores uh, online and offline, I'm sure. So uh, uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, the only thing I would say, Pete, is the, is the website powerseductionandwar.com. Oh. Uh, the the and war is spelled out. You can get uh, my blog posts, and there's a special offers for pre-ordering the book. Beautiful. 
You've been enjoying another fine episode of PrinterCast with Pete Williams and Dom Gocher. Make sure to hang out with the boys online at www.printermarketing.com or drop them a line via printercast at printergroup.com.